Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the, him, that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from life, from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tubes will hear his voice and come out, those that have done good to the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has, him, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not believe his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of the God within you. I have come from my in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If, in, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You can be seated. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the truth of your word. That your word would become powerful in our lives. That it would affect our lives to the point that our lives are changed once again. That we would come to see you as more glorious, more amazing, because of your word being preached. Father, thank you again for giving us your word, for your son being 
the word. Pray this in Jesus' name. We have to remember that the things that we just read, even though they are common to us, they were revelation when Jesus spoke them. They were earth-shattering, completely out of the realm of normalcy. This can be one of the problems we have with having the word so readily available to us that we can fail to look at what God said, how he revealed himself to us, and be amazed by it. This is amazing stuff. What we're studying today is the testimony of Jesus, the testimony that he gives to those that he's being confronted by after he healed that lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Again, let's not forget that this section of scripture happened as part of a story that's being revealed to us. He healed that lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The pool that spoke to the false god that the religious system had put in place. The false hope that it gave people all the while looking like, sounding like, and in many ways acting like the true gospel. What the people at the Pool of Bethesda were hoping in, what they were looking to, is proof of the heresy that was being taught by the religious leaders in the temple and to these people. These people were at that pool. And they were the proof of evidence that proved the heresy that was being taught. To this pool, Jesus came. And instead of arguing with these folks, instead of trying to convince them of their error, and instead of trying to overlook the fact that they were trusting in a false God for their salvation, he just came and proved that he was God. He did this by healing in an instant, a man that had been lame for 38 years. This was his pool of evidence. And as I pointed out last week, there is still heresy being preached under the banner of truth. Places that will use the name of Jesus, that will have Bibles in their pews, that will use orthodox terms and language, but who are not the true church. You will be able to spot those places by the pool of evidence that surrounds them. The books that the people in them read. Who do they look to for help? Are they reading Joyce Myers, Joel Osteen, Beth Moore, Steve Furtick, Rick Warren? How do they see God? As a friend, a really good solution to the pain and suffering in the world, or as the eternal, everlasting God of the universe that offers restitution, clemency, and complete forgiveness for our sins against him and his eternal judgment, the judgment that is waiting for each one of us that are outside of his son, Jesus the Christ. Theology matters. Which version of Jesus is being presented, taught, and lived matters. One brings death and bankruptcy. The other is the only hope for humanity. Again, remember, Jesus came to a people that held Scripture as truth. And they were worshiping a false god. To their false Jesus pool, the real Jesus came and healed. And he also warned that man that had been lame for 38 years. 
that there was a much worse punishment than being lame for 38 years for those that get this wrong, who continue on in the sin of believing in the false Jesus. In our verses today, we will see that Jesus did not stay by that pool where a false god was taught. He didn't try and act subversively, trying to undermine the false teaching of what was going on. He stood outside of it, and he called it what it was, Ichabod. And now in our verses today, he's giving those within that false church his testimony and then providing five witnesses to the truth of who he is. Truth is the standard that separates the false Jesus from the real one. To believe in the real Jesus means that you know the truth. It means that you know God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Romans 1. 18 through 23 clearly described those that were at the pool and those that were leading this false religion. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Jesus does not refute their ignorance. He just tells them the truth. He begins by doing this and saying, truly, truly. This was a rabbinical term that was used to mean, thus saith the Lord. It was used by rabbis when they quoted scripture, when they spoke the word of God. But nowhere outside the teaching of Christ is it ever found to be used by a man concerning what he is saying. This is what marked Jesus as separate from all other humans. In the Old Testament, God spoke and it was written down, such as in Genesis 1-3 when God said, let there be light, and there was light. What Jesus is about to say is no less impacting or important or God spoken. And what Jesus begins with is using the false teaching and heretical understanding of the Jewish religious system as proof of his deity. The Jews had added 39 laws to the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The 39th law concerned moving property and possessions from one place to another. But the religious leaders knew that God was excluded from their laws, that he could continue to work even after the work of the creation week, that he was outside of their laws, above them. This is why Jesus begins his testimony the way that he does, why he shows them that since God the Father continues to work as he determines right, God the Son has the same right to do so. And not just the same right, but the same ability. Verses 19 through 22. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may not marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now we've all here heard that term Trinity before. 
And most of us have a basic understanding of what the Trinity is and what that word means. But do you know the difference between the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity? Do you know what these terms mean? Knowing them matters. They're important. Ontological is the study of being. The ontological trinity speaks of who God is. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. This is the triune nature of the being of God. This is the ontological trinity. They are all equal. They are all one, as we're told in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. The economic trinity speaks not of the who of God, but the how of God. Instead of talking about the being of God, we're not talking about the work of God. We are distinguishing the roles within the Trinity in creation, in salvation. It's the Father who sends the Son into the world to redeem a people. It's the Son who acquires the redemption for those that have been given to him. It's the Spirit who applies that redemption to those that the Father has given to the Son who the Son himself has given himself for. So while there's no separation within the ontological trinity, there is a clear hierarchy within the economic trinity. The Son never sends the Father, and the Spirit never works separate from the Son. The Son is no less God than the Father, and yet the, son, the Father sends the Son. This is what Jesus is getting at here. The thought that God alone could raise the dead and give life was the teaching from the Old Testament, such as in Deuteronomy 32, 39, which says, See, now that I, even I, am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So the beginning part of verse 21 would not have been revelatory to the Jews about what this is what they taught. This was the operation and prerogative of God. But then Jesus claims this prerogative, this operation as his own. And he will later demonstrate that this is not an empty claim. He will raise the widow's son in Luke 7. He will raise the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5. And he will raise Lazarus in John 11. He does this because he and the Father are one. But then in verse 22, he moves from the giving of life to the final judgment. The Jews held and believed that they would all stand one day before God in judgment. But they didn't hold that it would be the coming Messiah who would judge them. He was only the one who would bring about the restoration of their kingdom. The truth of what Jesus is telling them elevates the Messiah from a messenger of God sent by the God they held to God himself as he truly is. And because of this, unbelief in the Son is equal to unbelief in the Father. Unbelief in the Son, as the Son has revealed himself to be, is proof of unbelief in the Father, as they thought that he should be. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus, once again, for the second time in speaking to, this men, to these men, is using that rabbinic phrase, one that is meant 
to catch their attention, to make them sit up and take notice that something is different here. This time, however, is not just speaking of the equality between the Father and Son, nor the economic functioning within the Trinity. He is now speaking the truth of the gospel and the outcome of the working of both the ontological and the economic trinity. Here also is truth that we need to think through. When do we enter into eternal life? When does our time in heaven with God actually begin? On the last day, whenever that is for each of us? Or now, on the day that we were saved? Here, Jesus tells us that the moment that we are saved, that we repent and believe, we pass from death to life. At that moment, we no longer stand under the just judgment of God. We are still subject to the consequences of sin. Our bodies will still decay and die. But the reality of who we are, of who you are, our true self is made alive for the first time and for all time. This brings us to the third and final time that Jesus will use that rabbinical saying, truly, truly. Verses 25 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In these verses, Jesus is speaking of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The coming millennium that is spoken of in the book of Revelation. A millennium that happens at the end of the age. That ushers in the end of the age. One that began in A.D. 33. That began at the resurrection of the one who is now speaking. And verse 25 is only one of three times in this gospel that Jesus uses the term Son of God. The other two times are in chapters 10, verse 36, and chapter 11, verse 4. In all three of these instances, his divine, unified, and equal standing with the Father is being highlighted. But his favorite way to speak of himself is found in verse 27, the Son of Man. The reason for this can be found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented himself, and presented himself before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In those Daniel verses, we see the triune God working for all eternity. In them, we see the reality of the majesty of the Son of God, the Son of Man. And also in verse 25, Jesus is speaking prophetically concerning us. Those that were living, yet were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sin. A death that was far more dead than the life that we thought that we were living. And then, in an instant, we heard the voice of the Son, and we were made alive. Let me stop there, digress a bit. Did you notice that what Jesus does not say is that those that are dead will hear his voice and then decide to accept him or not? Did you notice that he did not say that for everyone who is alive, that potential life is made available and that all they need to do to access this potential life is to collect their, their get-out-of-jail card free? All they need to do is to choose him. 
Later in chapter 8, he will once again address this issue of hearing as well. There, he is once again speaking to the religious leaders and once again equates himself with God and points out that once again, he and the Father are one. And once again, tells them of the separation within humanity. Verses 39 through 45. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if Abraham if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever, the, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Did you hear the eternal, irrevocable and only separation within humanity. Those whose father is the devil and those whose father is God. Here's a question, a pop quiz. Which one of you got to choose your father? Do we get to choose our father? This is a critical, crucial truth one that separates the true gospel from the false gospel. These men could not bear to hear his word. Not that they could not hear his word. They heard the same sounds as everyone else. They had the same ability to decipher the same sounds as everyone else. But they could not bear to hear his word. Could not. Not would not. They could not because they were dead in their sin. Isn't this the same gospel that was being preached at the Pool of Bethesda? The one that tells everyone that Jesus is love, that he loves them just as they are, the loves, and he loves them so much that he died for them, that he wants them to have a good life now, that this good life is possible if they would only just accept him The truth of the gospel of God is one that Jesus, and the one that Jesus taught is not that one. Verses 28 and 29 speak to this fact. He said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do not marvel at this? Are you kidding me? How can we not marvel at this? But the marveling that he's talking is about is that we shouldn't marvel that Jesus is God, the Son of Man, the Son of God. But here, Jesus is telling these men that the truth of who he is should not be a surprise to them. And what does that verse 29 thing mean? about the works. Is that a typo? A misprint? Are we really saved and judged by our works? No, it's not a misprint. And yes, we are saved or condemned by works. But all of our works count for nothing. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Since this is truth, then what are we to make of verse 29? What are the good deeds done? What are those deeds that are being done that bring these people into eternal life? What do they do? There are none. They don't do any good deeds. They have good deeds imputed to them. A righteousness that is not their own. A righteousness imputed to them. Listen to how Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. He said, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God it's on the basis of faith in Christ the savior of the world that we can have any good works any good deeds which we are told in verse 29 that bring us into eternal life so Jesus has just given his testimony. He has told them of who he is and who God is, that the Father and Son are inseparable in character and in deed. Verses 30 through 31. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus is about to prove that, he was, that what he has said is truth. And he gives five witnesses to the truth that he has spoken. God said that no man can be convicted except on the testimony of two or more witnesses. So Jesus doubles that and adds one more for good measure. His first witness is found in verses 32 through 35. It says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. And he has borne witness to this truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning lamp, a burning and shining lamp, and you and <coughs> you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first witness that he gives is John the Baptist. At this point in time in history, John the Baptist was more famous, more popular in Israel than Jesus was. But as we're told in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, John was sent for a specific purpose. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The population in general accepted John as a prophet. They came to him in droves to recommit themselves to the God that they had not heard from for over 300 years. But the religious leaders, by and large, did not accept the ministry of John. They put up with it. They were annoyed by it, but they didn't align their hearts to the teaching of it. For them, this first witness was a weak one. Witness number two. But the testimony, that I, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
The second witness that Jesus calls are the works that he has done, the signs and wonders. But not just his signs and wonders, but also the things that he taught. There are many within mainstream evangelicalism that will scoff at you if you tell them that you hold to a cessationist view of the gifts of God, that the sign gifts spoken of and produced by the apostles in the early church have by and large ended and been replaced by a greater witness, the complete word of God. The reason for this is that we desire to be amazed. We love magic tricks. And what's even worse is that we are not amazed at the finished work of Christ on the cross and the full representation of him given to us in and through his word. We want to see God work. We want to see physical healings, the physically dead brought back to life. Then we'll believe. Remember the miracles and signs that were given to Moses? The people there, the ones that saw them, were never converted to Christ, the Egyptians or the Jews. As much as we want to believe that seeing the power of God move through miracles would validate Christ, would convince people of him, they would not. They didn't. But Jesus points to his signs and wonders. The works that he did as evidence that he was from God. As evidence that he was God. And for the religious leaders, this too was a weak witness. Witness number three, verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This then brings Christ to his next witness, God the Father himself. In a courtroom, when a witness is called to the stand and sworn in, they can't change their minds. They can't waver on what their testimony has been given. The father in his son was so satisfied in him that he was the exact image of himself that on two separate occasions he did audibly speak to his son. At the baptism of Jesus where he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3:17, And then again at his transfiguration when he said, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. Luke 9:35 Jesus then lists four things about the Father that were truths for these men. They had never heard him, they had never seen him, they don't have his word abiding in them, and they do not believe in the one that he sent. This truth applies not only to them, but to the majority of the ma- of all mankind f- for all time. And half of these things apply to us, the redeemed of God. We have not heard his voice, and we will never see him. He has given to us his son in his stead, and that is enough. Witness number four, verses 39 through 44. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come from my fa- in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another one comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? The next witness that Jesus calls is the word of God itself. Let us remember that these men were not a liberal sect. They were not the Christian light that we see at places like Joel Osteen's so-called church. These men were fundamentalists. They held the word of God in high esteem. They were the type that would never be seen without a Bible under their arms. 
If you went to their homes, they would have the Ten Commandments posted on their walls. They knew the word, had memorized the word, and yet the word had not affected them towards salvation. They were devout in their worship of God. They said that they loved God and they devoted their lives to promoting God. But they promoted, loved, and worshipped a God that, had <clears throat> that they had made up in their own minds. Let this be a warning to us to never be surprised when a man who has spent his entire life studying the word, getting degrees in theology, and possibly even pastoring a church, maybe even a large church, goes sideways. It's no wonder that N.T. Wright is New Testament wrong, especially concerning his new perspective on Paul. There's one simple piece of evidence that Jesus puts forth that these men do not know the Father and are not of the family of God, verse 40. They refused to come to Christ that they could have life. But you'll counter that N.T. Wright claims Jesus as Lord, that he still holds to salvation through Christ, even though he's perverted the word of God. But what his actions and teaching proves is that he is standing at the pool of Bethesda, worshiping alongside the, blame, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, worshiping a man-made false god. And there's a second warning given here that can, in indi or can in <clears throat> indicate that a person is worshiping a false god when they accept glory from men. Verse 44, the statement made by Jesus, how can you, is given as evidence that these men did not love the true god. Does this speak to us, concerning us. Do we seek the glory of men, wanting to be known, wanting to have a title, wanting to be known as the best pitcher or the best debater, maybe the best actor, the best whatever? Well, maybe none of those things are in our hearts, but are we so afraid of public opinion that we are willing to compromise the word of God, our testimony, our values, to go along just to get along? Are we seeking the approval of man to such a degree that we're willing to compromise that which we know is truth? Remember, James said that it, Whatever we know to be true, if we do not do that, that is sin. If so, we need to repent and realize that this is seeking the glory of man too and could be an indication of which God we really are worshiping. Verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses is not the fifth witness given by Jesus. He is the supporting testimony used by Jesus to bolster the fourth witness, the scriptures. Moses did talk to God face to face. He did hear his voice audibly, and he was the one that wrote about the coming Christ, who gave detailed instructions of the tabernacle that was the shadow of Christ, that told the people that God would send another prophet like himself. It was based on his writings that these men had built their religion. But he will not give glory to these men for their devout behavior. No, he would stand as an accuser against them. To be sure, there is grace abounding shown to us in the first five books of the Bible. But the resounding theme given by Moses was not that we're in good standing with God, but that our sins separate us from him. The writings of Moses that these men held as the reasons that they were in good standing with God are the very thing that Christ tells them, accused them. They should have seen their need for the coming Savior in Christ 
through the writings of Moses, and they didn't. They had taken his writings, the warning of God, and the truth of his holiness, and the sinfulness of man, and made a religion out of it. They elevated Moses. They revered him, but they didn't listen to him. And this brings us to the final witness that will be called. Witness number five. It's not found in the book of John. It's found in the book of Acts. Verses 30 and 31. Paul said, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he, was fixed, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The final witness to the truth of the claims of Christ will not be given in word or even in works, but in the cross of Christ and the ascension of the Son of God. On Mars Hill, when Paul addresses the atheistic pagan theologians concerning their worship of many false gods, he tells them that there was a time that God overlooked ignorance. That being ignorant of who he is before could be overlooked. But that day is long past. Now, God commands all people to repent. Again, Notice that Paul did not say that he desires all to be saved, that all are to make a good choice, that all are supposed to follow their feelings. He uses very strong, very direct language. God commands. He does not softly and gently call. He does not woo with gifts and promises. He commands, and he doesn't command allegiance or proper theology. He commands that all people everywhere repent. To be able to repent, you first have to be convinced, convicted, that you need to repent. This is what is wrong with not presenting the gospel correctly. If you tell people that Jesus loves them, that he desires for them to have a better life, there is no call to repentance, just acceptance. If you tell them that Jesus is in heaven, and if they don't, if they accept him, that they will, that they're not, I'm sorry, if you tell them that Jesus is in heaven, if they don't accept him, that they're going to go to hell, Tell them that heaven is good, soft, warm, cuddly, fun. That hell is bad, hard, unfun, painful. There's no repentance when they choose heaven. Who in their right mind would choose hell given that option? You must tell them the truth. God in the past, before the advent of Christ, overlooked ignorance of his holiness and our sinfulness. But now, because of the sending of the Son of God, because he came, lived a perfect life, gave a perfect testimony of the glory of his Father, was murdered, and at the same time took upon himself the punishment of the sins of those that the Father had given him, died, and three days later rose, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, now he commands all to repent because he has given all authority and judgment into the hands of the Son, the Son that loves the Father to such an extent that he would not seek the glory of men, that he would not allow men to speak falsely concerning him that he loved so much that he died in order to make restitution for the brothers that, he have, that the Father had given him. This son will stand in judgment as judge, jury, and executioner on that last day and will gladly, happily, joyfully cast all that defame his precious Father into eternal hell. This 
is truth. But it isn't the last final truth that Jesus leaves us with. The same assurance that, he are, that we are given that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, that he will cast those that are not his into eternal hell, is also the same assurance that those that are his, that are no longer ignorant of God, who have been called and given the right to be called the sons of God, who have now heard the truth of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, who have repented, these he will not forsake. These he will not leave. These he will take with him before he judges the world. Let me close with another thought penned by the same author of the gospel, written by John in 1 John 3. Verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the testimony of Jesus. There are two pools of evidence. Pools that speak of a false gospel that leads to eternal death and a true gospel that leads to eternal life. Dear ones, it's my most earnest desire and hope that you worship the true Jesus, that his testimony rings true in your ear and because of it, that your soul shouts glory to God because of it. Let's pray.